Listen, as you read the Bible, one thing that becomes pretty clear is this. God asks his people to do some pretty crazy things, right? God asks his people to do some pretty crazy things that apart from it being God who asks, they feel insane. So Noah, there's never been a thing called rain, but water's going to come from the sky. I know you're in the middle of the desert, but build a big boat right there. That feels pretty crazy. Or Abraham, I know you and Sarah are in your 90s, but you're going to have a baby. Ah, Hey, Moses, the warriors of Egypt are pressing down on you. There's a massive body of water in front of you. Walk into it and touch it with your rod, and it's going to split, and you're going to be good to go. Like, that feels crazy. It sounds unreasonable. But isn't that just what God does? But it's not just the ancient days that that happens, Hey, Elizabeth Elliot, I want you to move into the tribe of people in Ecuador that murdered your husband in order to share the love of Jesus with them. Hey, Tim Keller, you're in a floundering church in Virginia. You're not a very good preacher, which he self-proclaims wasn't a good preacher at the time. I'm not dissing him. How about move to New York City and plant a church? Or hey, Dan, Kathy, why, do you, why don't you start selling chicken and keep your restaurants closed on Sundays so that employees can go to church and be with their families? But it's not even just out there. It's in this room. Hey, Tim, why don't you turn your entire financial advising business into one that serves the most vulnerable people, widows? Hey, Christopher and Stephanie, why don't you sell your house in Charlotte, lose thousands of dollars in order to plant a church in South Carolina? Hey, Matthew, why don't, thank you. Hey, Matthew, why don't you stop your really good job with the government and become a school teacher so you can pour more time into your family? Like, this is the lived life of people in this room. And here's what we're going to find out in today's text, and you'll know it to be true. God empowers you to do whatever he asks of you. God empowers you to do what he asks of you. And we need to understand that this is, this is Joshua's theme as you read the book of Joshua. And even more the theme that we'll see throughout this uh, series, and we entitled it, The Lord Will Fight For Us. It's a summary of the book, so open up to Joshua chapter 1, and we're going to start with Joshua 1, uh, 1 through 5, but we're going to go all the way to verse 9 today. This is God's holy word. Joshua 1, starting at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I, will, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness that is in Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. 
May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Before diving into the book of Joshua, we've got to understand some history, some background of Joshua. We're, we're going to miss a lot going into this text. The book of Joshua is a massive transition point in the Old Testament. The first five books of the Bible are, kids, help me out, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Who wrote those books? Moses. In chapter one of Joshua, who's dead? Moses. This is a big transition point. Moses, the author of these, is dead. That's called, anybody know, kids, do you know the name, some of the summary names of the first five books of the Bible? Anybody know? Genesis. Genesis. <laughs> well, we could do that. Torah or Pentateuch. Sometimes then we see when the Gospels are talking about, we're talking about the law. That's talking about the law is the first five books of the Bible or the books of Moses. But Moses at this point is dead, and that's a massive deal. If you've seen or been around a country where a central figure, an important figure, died, there's a leadership gap and a hole, and you realize something's going to change. And that's kind of unsettling for people. Moses' death is a huge deal for God's people. Remember, Moses is the one who led people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He led them through the Red Sea. They, he had them receive the law. He met with God in the tent of meeting. Now remember, in redemption history, that's this point, there was not written down text. You didn't go do your quiet time, open your Bible. There was no Bible. So how did God speak to his people through the tent of meeting and Moses? Moses was the mediator between God and man at that point. And if you needed to know something about God, you went through Moses and then the tabernacle and the priests. This was a big deal. So now Moses is dead. So that's something we've got to kind of put in our mind going into Joshua. Here's another thing we need to put in our mind going into Joshua. This is not the first time the people of Israel were on the edge of the promised land. We're almost hitting a repeat button. But if you don't know that, you're going to miss a lot of things. They've been here before. They've been on the edge of going into the promised land before. So all that we're about to see should have happened already. It should have happened with Moses, with Moses being alive. But it didn't. So what happened? Well, in the book of Numbers, we find what happened. Moses wanted to know what kind of land was there going to be in the promised land. What kind of people? Were they strong or weak? So he sends 12 spies into the promised land. They bring back some of the fruit of the land, and that's good fruit. They say it's flowing with milk and honey. It's a way of saying the cattle's good, the grass is good, the produce is good, the land is great. It's rich. It's sweet. But some of the spies report, report back, quote, However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The descendants of Anak, we'll read in a second, are ones who are giants. So let's dive into, you don't have to turn there, but it'll be on the screen, I believe. Uh, Numbers chapter 13, starting at verse 30. says this, Caleb... 
But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, talking about the promised land, for we are well able to overcome it. So Caleb was one of the spies that goes with them. Then the men who had gone up with him, gone up who are also spies, says, say this, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone out to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed at sorry, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. So get the image. They're massive. We're grasshoppers. That's how they're seeing themselves. So we seem to them. Verse 1 of chapter 14 of Numbers. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Moses, you're fired. Verse 5 then says, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Hear that? Joshua. That's who we're going to be looking at a lot. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out, it's exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. Get this, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And what a great mantra. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And so with the rebellion of the people comes 40 years, 40 years of wandering, 40 years of regret, 40 years of learning that you do the Lord's will the Lord's way. 40 years of realizing that God is on the throne, not them. And the people are humbled, and most of that generation dies. Those other 10 spies that were with Caleb and Joshua, just a few verses later, they're gone, dead. 
But Joshua and Caleb remain two faithful spies among the twelve. And so as we head back into Joshua chapter 1, this is one of those guys 40 years later. He's pushing 80 at this time, most likely. And point number one today is this. I know there's a lot of background. There's only two points today. Point number one, the promise of God, God's land, and God's presence. Look at verse 2. God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm going to give them to the people of Israel. So, like I said, Joshua's 40 years older. He's a man who had fought and won many battles. He'd been mentored by Moses. And now God is turning to Joshua and saying, it's time. The long-awaited moment is here. It's time to cross the Jordan and enter the promised land that you spied out 40 years ago. Oh man, how many of us have thought 40 years? Like, I'm 43. Like, it's like my entire life. He says, you're going to, I love this. God just says, you're going to cross the Jordan. Now, what we find out a few chapters later is it's flood season. So the Jordan is over 100 feet wide, and it's swiftly flowing this time of year, and probably around 10 to 12 feet deep. And you're taking everybody, men, women, children. Let's just go into the river. This is where you're going. Verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I've given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. This is the land that God promised. And verses 3 and 4 kind of read like a map of this territory. This land is enormous that they are going into to take over. And if you overlay it, just to get a picture, you overlay it with the United States, this is kind of the size. The east would be like the Atlantic Ocean, like kind of where we are. The western border would be Kansas, okay? So that's, that's how wide it is. The northern border would be Chicago, and the southern border would be southern Louisiana. All right, so that's a pretty big piece of land that they're going into. But the land is huge, but the promise is not new. It's a promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis 15 and then passed to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. Actually, Joshua 1, 3 through 5 is verbatim Deuteronomy 11, 24 and 25. The original promise to Abraham was 700 years prior to that moment with Joshua. But God does not forget his promises. But let's remember this is not some real estate transaction. You have your lawyers, you draw up everything, and we're good to go. No, this land is currently occupied. We're going to find that the people of this land that are in Canaan or in the promised land are a rebellious people against the Lord, and God is going to bring judgment upon them through the Israelites. 
Okay, that's an important thing to understand. You might be like, is this a genocide? What's going on? Well, there's two different things that you want to have in your mind of understanding what these people in the promised land currently do. One, they are morally corrupt, lots of idol worship going against God the Creator. But also, part of their idol worship is a significant amount of child sacrifice. They're killing their babies. All of a sudden, you're like, I don't have as much compassion for those guys. Like, it's brutal, the moral corruption and the child sacrifice of those who are across the river. Now, what is interesting as you go through Joshua is it's not just the Canaanites who are going to be judged. It's anyone who goes against God, and Israel goes against God. We're going to see that as we go through Joshua. It's like, it's not, it's not, oh, Israel is, is God's people and these guys, and, and never receive judgment and these people are not God's people and they receive judgment. No, it's whoever's honoring God stays on God's side. And whoever doesn't honor God, the hammer's coming. Verse five, God says to Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And then get this passage. This is familiar. It's in the New Testament in Hebrews 13. I will not leave you or forsake you. This verse sets the stage. God is telling Joshua that he is with Joshua. And it reminds us exactly of what Joshua had exclaimed 40 years prior in Numbers 14.9. Here's what he exhorted. We read this earlier. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. 40 years later, God's saying, it's time, Joshua. It's game time. The torch is passed. Joshua is now the leader. God's presence is going to enable Joshua. God enables what he asks of his people. And that is why God continues to speak to Joshua here. And it's a type of like commissioning. It reminds me of like ordination service meets like military deployment commission. It's like meshed together here. What we find in point number two here is the power of God. Be strong and courageous. Look at verse six. Here's God talking to Joshua. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous." Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God empowers what he also commands. God gives power, but Joshua has to walk out obedience in that power. He needs to be strong and courageous. The very fact that the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you, is why Joshua can be encouraged to be strong and courageous, because God's with him. So this is not Joshua pumping himself up 
or recounting his past successes. It's not our modern, you know, you put your headphones on and you're pumping yourself up before the game. You got the hip-hop going and you're like, yeah, let's go take the field. He's not doing that. I love doing that. You know, you, if you work out and you like have some like mellow music, it really does like, you're like, I don't feel like doing it. I just feel like taking a nap. But you have like that pump-up music. It does something. This is not the pump-up music. What's pumping him up here? It's that God is empowering him to move forward. And you get the theme, right? Kids, what's the theme of verses 6 through 9? Anybody? It's on your sheet, I think. <laughs> I think. Maybe it's not. Huh? Be strong and courageous, right? It says it three different times. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, only be strong and courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. In verse 18, we'll see this next week, the people actually tell Joshua, be strong and courageous. What's the theme? What's Joshua need to learn? Be strong and courageous. We get the point. But some questions arise for us as we consider why is this the continual charge for Joshua? So here's a couple questions. Why be strong and courageous? Friends, God does not tell someone to be strong and courageous when what they're about to do is easy and simple. Like, be strong and courageous. Take a nap. Like, or like, be strong. You know, it's, there's something that you need strength and you need courage to go toward. And Joshua is being asked to do something massive. There are large obstacles. There's a river we already talked about. There's a city of Jericho with massive walls right beyond the river. That's, that's enemy number one is Jericho. You physically cannot knock that down. There's this land, lots of land we talked about that's huge. There's people, thousands of people on the other side of that river that outnumber the Israelites. And those people are not wimps. Just to give you one little hint of that, the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 10, <laughs> Joshua 10, it says this, quote, all their men were warriors. One city of tons of cities in the promised land, the Gibeonites, all their men were warriors. I'm guessing that applied to a lot of other nations there as well. So there's a reason why the people of Israel 40 years prior said, we're grasshoppers. They're going to crush us. They fled. There's a reason for that. Those people still live in that land that are huge. Commentator David Jackman states that Joshua probably had this, this excited anticipation. He's been waiting 40 years for this and inner panic, right? Excited anticipation, inner panic, and Joshua needs courage. It can be assumed that by God telling Joshua to be strong and courageous over and over and over again, in fact, Joshua struggled with being strong and courageous. It reminds me of Paul talking to Timothy about not being timid. Why? Because Timothy was tempted to be timid. God asks his people to do that which they cannot do on their own. He tells them to walk out a life that they cannot live on their own. God calls his people to do things that they will only do if they are strong and courageous in God. 
And friends, we will find in the book of Joshua, oh, friends, there's an opposite, at least in the book of Joshua, an opposite of being strong and courageous. The opposite in the book of Joshua, being strong and courageous, is compromised and comfortable. Living in a spiritual lethargy, a laziness, a slothfulness, an unfaithful ease. Unwilling to push forward and do all that God says, but just kind of doing a little bit of what God says. And friends, kids, this would be a great bookmark for you to write with this verse and have it in your Old Testament Bible reading. It's Romans 15, 4. It tells us how we, New Testament Christians, can read the Old Testament and why it's important. It says this, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So this book of Joshua was written in former days for our instruction, that we may have endurance and encouragement. This book of the Bibles, we're entering into it today and going to study it over several months, is for our encouragement. We're going to see strong and courageous Joshua and other people all the way through. You're like, yeah! We're going to grow in endurance, and we're going to be warned, because this former day is for our instruction. It's calling us to be faithfully plodding with eager expectation, and it helps us endure. So my next question is this, how? How? How is Joshua to be strong and courageous? How can he be strong and courageous? Look at verse 7. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. So verse 7 tells us this, being strong and courageous is rooted in obedience to God's word. Then verse 8 tells us being strong and courageous is rooted in meditation on God's word. You shall meditate on it day and night. Then verse 9 says being strong and courageous is rooted in the presence of God. The Lord is with you wherever you go. There's three things that are really important. We'll hit them a little bit more in just a second, but, but let me kind of do a side note for us here. Joshua is the first leader to not just rely on presence of God in the tent of meeting. He's the first leader to rely on the written word. And notice the exhortation here in Joshua 1 is you got to know the word. You've got to know the word. Don't veer from the word, obey the word, meditate. It needs to be in you. He's a word person. Now, there's word and presence that we find here. And what we find throughout the history of redemption is a more and more reliance on the word for God's people. Now, friends, let's get back to those three different ideas of being strong and courageous in 7, 8, and verse 9. Being strong and courageous is rooted in obedience to God's Word. Being strong and courageous is rooted in meditation on God's Word. And being strong and courageous is rooted in the presence of God. So let's think about that. Are we rooted in obedience to God's Word? Are you rooted in obedience to God's Word? Or, or like Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Are we rooted in God's word? 
Next, are we rooted in meditation on God's Word? And I don't mean meditation by like the Eastern meditation of emptying your mind, but the biblical definition of meditation, which is filling your mind with thoughts of God. Or as Psalm 1 says, it's the guy who's meditating on God's Word day and night. He's like a tree firmly planted, firmly rooted by streams of water, living water. And he grows. His leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. There's this meditation on God's Word. Some people talk about it as muttering. One of the analogies I've heard that just helps me, um, anybody had, well, I'm not going to ask you. Don't raise your hand. If you've had a sore throat this week, do not raise your hand right now. (laughs) But hypothetically speaking, if someone had a sore throat in this room this week, you probably got a throat lozenger or a cough drop, right? And you put that in your mouth and what happens? You don't, you don't crunch it up. If you do, that's not wise. If you, if you put it in your mouth, you let that drip down and soothe your throat, right? It drips down. That's a great analogy for meditation. It's just slowly going down. It's changing. It's healing. It's comforting. You're, you're getting to know God through his word. It's like that lozenger. So we're rooted in meditating on God's Word. And the third thing was we're rooted in an awareness of God's presence. Do you know Jesus as your King, as your Savior? And then if you do, do you realize you've been given the Spirit? You've been given the Holy Spirit to make you whole. You're rooted in the presence of Christ in you. The hope of glory, Paul says. Jesus said right before he leaves, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's this presence of Christ. In Hebrews 13, I love this. It applies, God speaks to Joshua, okay? God is speaking to Joshua, but Hebrews 13 takes the words from from God to Joshua and says, now it's from God to his church, and here's the quote. You may heard it, have heard it. You may know it. I will never leave you or forsake you. That was for Joshua. The author of Hebrews says that's for you. By the Spirit for the Christian, I will never leave you or forsake you. So how can we be strong and courageous? We've got the Word and we've got the Spirit. Christians, we have stuff that Joshua didn't even have. We have the Word, the whole counsel of God's Word, and we have the Spirit of God, not outside of us, but dwelling in us. So we can be strong and courageous. We can be obedient and meditate on God's Word and aware of His presence. Or that could all be summarized by having unswerving devotion to God. So as we end, Christopher, if you'll come on up. Our goal in studying Joshua is not moralizing Let me explain. We're not trying to have just fix our morals. We're not just to be like Joshua, okay? So if you're reading Joshua, you're reading a book about Joshua or any other patriarch, and you're like, be like Moses, be like Joshua, that that is just throw it away, throw it in the fire, okay? We're not just to be like Joshua and go, go fight your battles and cross your Jordans and fight your Jerichos. If you're marching around your house, like that's unwise and blowing horns. That's not an application of the book of Joshua. 
No, the goal of, and you don't want your house to fall. Uh, the goal of studying Joshua is that you have no chance apart from the God of Joshua. You have no chance in life unless that God is with you wherever you go. And only in him can you be strong and courageous. You can only be as strong and courageous as you are dependent and obedient. That only happens if we are tethered to Jesus Christ, the better Joshua. Jesus teaches us much like what we we find in Joshua. Jesus speaks of the empowering work of the Spirit in people's lives. Jesus speaks of his people walking out courageous obedience. Jesus speaks of, of never leaving or forsaking his people. And so here's what we do in reading Joshua. We stand at the foot of the cross where our Savior died, where our Savior bled, where our Savior gave us full forgiveness, and we know there's the resurrected Christ on his throne, and we stand there at an empty cross, and now we read Joshua. And as we read Joshua, we're strong and courageous in Christ. We know that Jesus is for us. He empowers us for obedience. And so then, I want to ask us a question that can be pulled from Joshua, but only if we are rooted in Christ. And here's my question. What is God asking of you today? He asked Joshua to do something that Joshua had no clue how to pull off. Joshua had no idea but Joshua knew God. What is God asking of you today? Maybe there's something he's asking that kind of feels beyond you. Maybe you have that, that eager anticipation and inner panic. Ah! And you just need to be rooted in the goodness and favor and knowledge that Jesus is for you and he's the one coming to you and saying, be strong and courageous. Why is he telling you that? Because you need it. Because you're not strong and courageous on your own. Oh, friends, let us pray for that today. Let us pray for each other today. And let's note that this starts with small obedience, right? This doesn't usually start with massive obedience. Like Joshua, if you read, he was mentored for 40 years by Moses. There are battles that he fought over time. There's even a a rebuke where he was rebuking somebody else for for prophesying. And Moses is like, man, I wish everybody was prophesying. And Joshua was like, oh, okay. He was learning. He was humbled. It starts with small obedience. In Luke 16, 10, Jesus said, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. So friends, let's stand together.